I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton, I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this, that's the plan. Hey, how you doing, podcats? Adam Buxton here. Ah, now what is that? It's like a light aircraft up there. Well, it isn't like a light aircraft. It is exactly a light aircraft. Ah, I couldn't tell you what kind, though. It looks like a child's toy. I personally wouldn't like to fly in it. It's a nice day, though, for a bit of flying, if that's an option. It's absolutely beautiful out here on my walk with uh, Rosie the dog. If you're a new listener to the podcast, welcome. I'm your unctuous host. Rosie is my dog. She's a Whippet Poodle Cross. She's up ahead on the track. And this is the tree where this bird lives. And the bird flies in between this tree and the one next to it. And because I'm ignorant, I can't tell you what kind of bird that is. But I recognize its call. And it's always just there up on its own. Enjoying a bit of bird bants there. This is the kind of day that I will really miss when I'm dead. It's a cheery thought. I was listening to the radio the other day and the sports news came on and they were talking about this guy who's a rugby coach, I think. He's called Die Young. (laughs) That is a good name. Well, I guess rugby's a dangerous game, isn't it? But you'd be better off fronting a punk band with that name. What he should do, of course, is find someone called Liv Long and marry her and then it'll balance out. Let me tell you about this week's podcast, number 43, which features a conversation recorded on my recent trip to Los Angeles with the American actor and comedian Nick Kroll. He invited me over to his house for a rambly chat. We talked about all the important stuff. Douches and what exactly defines a douche as in the uh, slang, not the actual sanitary product, I'm glad to say. We also ended up talking quite a lot about the actor James Franco. Uh, You know James Franco. Started out starring in Freaks and Geeks on US TV, Judd Apatow's TV show, and uh, has gone on to appear in a variety of indie and mainstream movies over the years, including Danny Boyle's film, 127 Hours. I think he was nominated for an Oscar for his portrayal of a man who got his arm stuck in some rocks and decided to cut it off with a penknife. It's what I would do. The reason we were talking about James Franco was that Nick had just returned from the South by Southwest Music and Film Festival when I spoke to him, and he had seen James Franco's film, The Disaster Artist, which was a big hit, I believe, at the festival, and it chronicles the making of the 2003 cult film The Room, directed by Tommy Wiseau. We talked a bit about that and about the film industry's treatment of failure in general. You know me, I like uh, talking about failure. (laughs) I think it's interesting. We also spoke about Nick's recent Broadway comedy show, Oh Hello!, which he wrote and performed with his friend, comedian John Mulaney, playing a couple of characters that started life on Nick's Comedy Central sketch series called Kroll Show. So Nick told me how he got to know John Mulaney and how their first Broadway show turned out. And he also explained a little bit more about the whole world of improv. So I'll stop crapping on. I might just, I might just lie down in the grass in this field pluck myself a dandelion clock 
and lick it like a lolly while I'm staring at the clouds. Here we go! Great for my uh, yeah. sound effects album. Yeah. Mm. This is a tiny red pepper I'm eating. They've miniaturized peppers here in the United States. Yeah, um, that's a weird one. That looks, it almost looks like a large chili pepper. It looks like one, but it has the bland consistency of a regular bell mm. pepper. You think that's bland? Try one from the UK. Aren't you known for your agricultural output? Well, in parts of the UK, you can get some delicious bits and pieces but i'm talking about supermarket yeah. food and your average supermarket carrot pepper whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be is a pretty tasteless proposition yeah i would picture being like go and pick up a box of peppers is yeah. what i picture an english mum telling herself <laughs> how's your english accent surprisingly bad yeah what do you do when you when you need to do a brit what's your um, go-to accent i mean there's a, a Disney villain version of it that I'm, I think, most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. A kind of mustachio. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes of course. And something like that is the most comfortable. Uh, Chris Guest in The Princess Bride, The Six-Fingered Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right into the credits. I'm going to start dropping some credits Do right it. now. I love it. I was in a film called Sausage Party. Oh, I liked it very much. Yes, you um, were the douche. I was the douche. But the original version of the douche, when I did the table read of that film, this is a major motion picture. Highest grossing R-rated animated feature of all time. I wrote that down and handed it to you to make sure that you would yeah. say that. <laughs> did I read it properly? Mm-hmm. You read it beautifully. <laughs> Thank you. Beautifully. But it was originally, when I did the table read, I knew Seth a little bit and those guys and They asked me to do it, and it was like, oh, they couldn't get Ian McKellen or Patrick Stewart for the read, because the original douche was like... A British douche. Yes. (laughs) How dare you? You know, like, of that sort of elk. Have you ever heard of Brian Blessed? Mm, I know the name. Brian Blessed! (laughs) He was the the, the head of the Hawkmen in Mm. Flash Gordon. Mm -hmm. Yes, Gordon's alive! (laughs) He was that guy. I love... Yeah... That particular quality voice is a lovely. It's a. It's only actors have that voice. Yes. 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 Of course we will. And you know who I mean by Matt Berry? Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah. So he mines that scene brilliantly. Does that is that how he speaks in life? A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. It's a sort of slightly more um, cockneyfied version of, of uh-huh. those characters. But the quality is. He's yeah, a, he's got a very rich. Oh, it's a it's a luscious. A voice. rich timbre. Yeah. It's gorgeous. So we, when the first we did the first table read of it, they had me do it that way, mm. and, and then they were like, "Oh, like maybe we don't have to fucking deal with Ian McKellen or Patrick Stewart. We'll just have Kroll do it because that's the order. You go, and this is gonna hurt Sir Pat. Sure, but it goes Sir Ian, Sir Pat, Nick, Sir Kroll, Sir Kroll. I, I, I uh, you know, Lord Kroll. Knock on wood. Yeah, that uh, I'm gonna get that night ship soon. But um, <laughs> the night ship. We're we're still. I'm still waiting. So I recorded the the movie. I did a bunch of sessions over a number of years as the douche, as this sort of like English villain. And then what they realized was like what they were making was a Pixar movie, but their villain was like a Disney villain. You know, it was like yeah. more of so on the last session, they rewrote my character as the douche, which was, you know, ostensibly Bobby Bottle Service, a character that I had done and had rewritten it as a re- what a, a modern douche is. Right. Someone maybe who would vacation in Blackpool. <laughs> have I done that right? Have I have I succeeded? No, not quite. I don't know. I mean, it's I, I'm still like in America. What, what's how would you define a douche in, I, in U.S. terms? Um, Apart from, obviously, a female sanitary product. Yes. I mean, a a douche is, um, I mean, there's so many examples. And I... Trashy or... Trashy and showy and, like, people who, like, 
unironically loved Entourage at the end. <laughs> That's very specific. Yes. Oftentimes aspirational and showing their wealth or, or the appearance of wealth in, in any manner they can. Okay, right, right, right. So sort of flash and... A lot of flash. So there was a show in the U.S. called Jersey Shore. It was yeah. a reality show. And then they did a... They, I remember seeing the British version of it. It was like right, tanned right. and... Yeah, Essex. The only way is Essex, yeah. probably. Yes, something like that, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's less of a class thing in the US, though, isn't it? It is, like most things, it's less of a class thing, yeah. theoretically, and yet it, then it is very much broken up into class of, at some point, but not in the same way that it seems to be in the UK. Mm. But, it, yeah. Um, <laughs> the entourage at the end. Yeah. I've just got to deal with that, first of all. <laughs> what was the deal with Entourage at the end? Because it started off... It's one of those shows I feel as if I completely got the wrong end of the stick from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought that it was this brilliantly counterintuitive show that, you know, most programs, most films would talk about the bad side of fame mm-hmm. and point out how meaningless and shallow the whole pursuit of fame is. Mm-hmm. Here was a show, though, that celebrated it unironically. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a sort of conscious, clever move on their part. And, sure. it, and it actually seemed like it had worked. It was an enjoyable show to sure. watch. And you sort of vicariously enjoyed the, the, the good life for sure through these guys and it seemed like whenever there should be a beat where one of them got addicted to something or mm. things went wrong, it didn't happen. Things just went well. Yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful. And th- that's how I, I remember, you know, it was like that HBO Sunday night block where you had The Sopranos, Sex and the City, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and, and Entourage. And it was a, they were all very different and all very enjoyable for, in, in, for different ways. And I remember genuinely enjoying it. And then I remember... Poor Entourage. It was like the last season of Six Feet Under. I don't know if you watched that one season just got so heavy. And then like, oh, yeah. You know, like Entourage comes on and you're like, oh, boy. Like you all of a sudden. (laughs) And it was like season six. Yeah. Um, Now you're just back from South by Southwest, aren't you? I am. How was that? It's, I love it. What were you doing there? What was I doing there? I was presenting the Texas Film Hall of Fame no big deal. Mm. Uh, I was introducing my friend Sarah Green, who's a producer, uh, who was getting inducted, as well as uh, Jeff Nichols, who uh, directed this movie, Loving, that I was in this past year. Second right. movie I've dropped of my career. I didn't know you were in that. I'm in that film. I still haven't seen it. Want to see it. I'm a big fan of Jeff Nichols. Oh, the best. I mean, I love the movie, but I love his films. And so uh, Sarah is is his producer. And so they were both being inducted in the... He lives in Austin, and she's spent many, many years there working with Jeff and Terrence Malick. And so I went down for that, and then got to just hang out and did a few shows, Comedy Bang Bang, and and, uh, I did a conversation with Nick Offerman, two Nicks on stage, one a fuller beard than the other. He's got a great beard, and he's a real man, and he works with wood. Harrison Ford slash Jesus. Yes, Yes, true. Truthful. Smokes less weed than both of them. Mm. And I saw some movies. What did I see? Uh, Malik's movie, Song a Song. Oh, that's... Uh, he even filmed some of that at South by Southwest, it's a, Yeah, a ton he? of it is in, like is in Austin is the focus of it, and a lot of it was filmed at, on stages at South He by. started doing it about 500 years ago, didn't yes. he? Yes, he did. And he... So what sort of bands are two, in there? Hootie he, and the Blowfish. <laughs> doing there yeah it's um peter frampton uh <laughs> no but there is cool st- i mean there are moments with patty smith and with iggy pop and but i heard that no one actually plays anything or you, is it just the protagonists that don't play anything yeah they don't really uh gosling plays you you see him playing a bit and and tinkering and and writing and playing a bit and uh so Rudy mara you don't really see play very much right we should say for people who don't know what we're on about this is a a, a film terence malick film um, that's about uh, a relationship between these two musicians, right? Yes, more or less. It's really, it's sort of uh, Michael Fassbender and, and Ryan Gosling fighting over, directly or indirectly, over Rooney Mara. Yeah. And Fassbender is uh, quite devilish, and Ryan Gosling's more of a, you know, charming romantic. Yeah. And it was cool to be in Austin, to watch a movie about Austin. Mm-hmm. And then I saw The Disaster Artist which is James Franco's new movie that Seth Rogen produced about the making of The Room, the Tommy Wiseau movie. Right. Have you seen Have you seen? I've it? seen bits of it. It's Never seen the whole thing. It's should one ma- see the whole thing? One should see the whole thing. Right, okay. One should see The Room 
because it's it is truly the best worst movie ever made as it is sold. I mean, it is, and I would assume your fans and and people who are listening to this, my gut is would get quite a bit of joy. I out would of say it. most of the podcasts would be familiar. Yes, with, uh, I would. I would have with the room, but if people aren't. It's where would they start with that? Well, there's you can buy the DVD from Tommy Wiseau, yeah. who's the man behind it, and I believe that the only place you can get it is not on Amazon. It's from like theroommovie.com or something like that. When did he make it? He made it in the early, I'd say the early two thousands. Um, but I and I remember just driving down in 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 Los Angeles. You know, there there are always like small billboards for movies that are getting no real distribution, but somebody's put up some money so that they can have a billboard. His was up for about four years. I mean, the picture of Tommy is one of the funniest images, even to the font. I mean, you'll everything about it is wrong. He shot it on two cameras simultaneously. He shot it on film and on HD. And so most of the framing is off-center because he literally had cameras next to each other filming the same scene. Right. What was the point of that? He didn't know which one he wanted to eventually okay. use. Keeping his options open. <laughs> exactly. Very, very wise. So obviously the movie, this movie's truly wretched, but in, in so it's beautiful and very pure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the guy Tommy made the room with was this guy, Greg Sestero. And Greg eventually wrote a book. He's the best friend in the movie and he's like the line producer and casting director. Um, Greg wrote a book about his experience of making the movie. They then took that book and have adapted it into a film starring James Franco as Tommy Wiseau and his brother Dave as Greg and the journey of them meeting and then making the room. And I truly enjoyed it. Um, And I mean, Franco directed the movie as well, but he directed it as Tommy. He stayed in character the whole time. Oh, my God. Which, you know, is like, it's like taking Daniel Day-Lewis to the next level. Yeah. But everyone who worked on it, I think, had fun doing it. And I thought the final product was great. And I think Franco truly identifies with Wiso as like someone who I think earnestly goes and takes chances and makes things and people make fun of him for it. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's, there's a real humanity in the final product. But it's also fucking hilarious and if you know the room i mean there's a ton of the movies in it and you see it do, um, what the actual original bits or do they recreate they recreate it right, and at the right, end right. of the movie you see some of the recreations side by side oh okay you know did you see um the meryl street movie about the singer what's her name florence foster no. jenkins yes i did not yeah worth seeing yeah you got some similar themes there with an extremely talented performer, Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. playing this woman who was sort of deluded, uh, quite rich, and able to indulge this passion she had for music, despite the fact that she had no real talent for it. Sure. But because everyone around her was keen for her patronage financially, they, they, they encouraged her. Yeah. Until at a certain point, it was impossible for her to ignore that people were just laughing at her. Yeah. And there's a moment when Meryl Streep realizes this, that people have just been making fun of her. And, and actually this thing she loves doing, she has no real gift for. And it's heartbreaking, you know. Yeah. And, it, and it's sort of brilliant to see someone as talented as Meryl Streep playing this person who really doesn't have any talent. Right. But doing it in a way that is not at all sneery or, or, or mocking, you know. Yeah, it, it, similarly, you, you watch that unfold in The Disaster Artist. And what was crazy is that The Room became a cult hit. He kept it in theaters and then people started going. And then it became like a Rocky Horror Picture Show where people would go and, you know, there were things that were happening in the movie that they then everyone would chant together or people would, you know, have props and things like that. And Tommy would go to these screenings and speaks at the end. And But he's now changed the narrative to saying he made a comedy. Oh, right. Okay. You know, so he... But so I think what was trippy was watching the disaster artist with him at the premiere. He had not seen this movie. Uh Uh-huh. This was his first time seeing... And presumably within the narrative of the disaster artist, it's not a comedy. No. No. It is an earnestly made film. Yeah. Was he happy with that? Well, so we then... (laughs) He was... It was was unclear. They called everyone up on stage. He he didn't speak afterwards, but we all ended up back at the hotel later that night, and Franco rolled up with Tommy and Greg. I was... I mean, I was was very stoned as well, and pretty (laughs) drunk, 
but I they everyone sat down and I found myself shaking uncontrollably like the adrenaline or excitement of being in a room with two guys who had made a movie about two guys mm. and all of them there and then Seth and Jay and James talking to Tommy and asking what did he think of the movie and Tommy being like 99.9% I endorsed this movie. It was just so surreal. It was felt so crazy and meta. And then it, it just was a joy. It was, but it was, I literally found myself shaking. Like, yeah. like I was a, you know, when you were like a kid and you're about to make out with a girl for the first time and you're just. I've read about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking like, when I say kid, I mean like, you know, when you're like 21 and you're having the first kiss <laughs> and you're get, like, all of a sudden you start to get shaky and you're like, I don't yeah. think this is horniness. I think this is just adrenaline and excitement and fear. And it, that's what it felt like sitting at this, just watching Mm. Also, Tommy makes an, he has a line of men's underwear that he makes and jeans. So if you get into Tommy, go check out his underwear and jeans, his line. He's very interested in men's underwear. Excellent. Yeah. And they are passionately made, but absolutely useless, presumably. <laughs> they're very It funny. turns out that they're a comedy. Yeah. Of they were made underwear. seriously, but they're actually hilarious. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> James Franco, though, as you said, he's an interesting character because he treads that line between being sort of taking himself quite seriously and being able to laugh at himself. Yes. And I mean, I've never, not being an American and not being out here, I've what? never really, I'm sorry, uh, I, I've never really been aware of him doing anything embarrassing. I think most of the stuff that would be considered embarrassing gets filtered out before it reaches uh -huh. us in the UK. So we only see the good stuff. I was aware of the fact that when he hosted the Oscars, that was supposedly embarrassing. I think that was a, yeah, I mean, I think that was, and I, watch this. I was a, a part of the roast of James Franco oh, on yeah. Comedy Central. So now we're getting into TV credits. I've moved over to Love mention it. some TV credits. And I did not know him before that, but I was asked to do it. And it was it was fun because it was the one way I would do a roast, I think, because it was like, we're not making fun of some albatross or some dinosaur of, of the business who is like clanging for one last like you know, wants to be back on TV or needs a million dollars. It was like a relevant current person, which is like kind of what the roasts were back in the day when it was like Dean Martin and Sinatra and Don Rickles and all these guys who were still quite actively in their careers and, and doing stuff. So yes, it's, it's a peculiarly American tradition. I don't think we have anything like that. No, America. the English just quietly roast each other constantly. Yeah, we just internalize it and <laughs> then <laughs> bitch behind people's backs. Yeah, or or directly with sharp, very, just the thinnest blades that you can't even realize until later you realize you have a deep paper cut yes, of, yes. A, of emotional brutality. That's right. The withering of James Franco. That's, <laughs> yes. what, that's, what, that's what it would be. Yes. But in research him you know at the time it was at the height of him doing everything i was just talking to him about being uh on broadway mm -hmm. which i recently which, <laughs> which, I'm, go I which yeah, I'm going okay. to ask you about but yes. he had done of mice and men and so we were talking about what that schedule is like of doing a broadway show or as uh, the west end mm -hmm. might be more analogous for you so that you can understand what i'm talking thank about thank you very much um and he, you know, it's a pretty grueling schedule. It's it's eight shows a week in six days. Right. You yeah, do a you, matinee on yeah, you Saturday. Do, we were doing, we did two, a matinee Saturday, Sunday. Some oh. people do a Wednesday, whatever it was. Yeah. He said he was flying back to L.A. to teach a class at UCLA or, or, or it might have been San Francisco. On his day off from Broadway, he was flying across the country to teach a class in screenwriting or filmmaking or something. What a mania. That's like a seven-hour flight. Yeah. So that's the kind of what was less embarrassing of the wasn't the work he was doing. It was 
the idea that he was going back to school, taking class, writing a poetry book, writing a, a play, uh, making films with the classes that he was teaching. It was just a, he seemed to be making a ton of art mm. and being experimental and being taking chances. And so, when, you know, it's, it was the kind of thing where it was, it was fun to make fun of because it's like, haha, like how unironically you want to make art, you fucking piece of shit. Yeah. But as I was sort of, you know, trying to write jokes about it, I was, it, my, my respect actually grew f- for him, which is like, oh, you unironically want to make art. Yeah. Or you're interested in something you don't care whether people will say like, what's he doing doing this like, you know, experimental art? What do you, what's he doing making an art exhibit? You know, he's an actor or whatever it was. And so I think that's what he sort of got made fun of more than the actual physical work that he did yes yes you know what was I, I never saw him at the oscars what was the deal he was like it was he was he sort was of... paired with anna hathaway to host the oscars and it was i think at a point when the oscars was feeling particularly irrelevant and so they thought they'd bring in two younger actors to come in and host it so you had two hot young actors and i think what it turned out to be though was it felt like you were watching the the girl who was the president of the drama club being paired with the kid who was like smoking cigarettes out back and and the gay drama teacher was like, <laughs> he should be in the play too. You know, and so you just had these two very different energies. And I think his misstep there, which I don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not one to judge or to publicly say something on a digital f- platform that can be pushed out into the world, uh, into ears across the globe. God forbid. His one misstep from the rest of his career is that he felt a little too cool for school in that when in reality he's not at all i mean he's a he's a very genuine kind of performer and it just felt like a moment where he was like "Ooh, i've agreed to do this and now i'm retreating because i'm i feel right you know, so he was all kind of a little bit slurry and like I don't know, yeah exactly and and that's not his actual vibe as a as an artist okay um in in this business when your friend's do something that is that doesn't work. Uh huh. How do you handle it? What's your personal policy on the, on that whole thing? Huh. Is it to be always supportive by default with a friend mm-hmm. and just say, "Yeah, it was fine. It was fine." You know, you, you don't say too much about it to incriminate yourself, but yeah. you say, "Yeah, it was good. It was interesting. That, that bit really worked. That uh-huh. was fantastic." Or do you feel you owe it to them to be absolutely honest and say, "You know what? I'm your friend, and I think that." You shouldn't have done that. First off, if people ask you for notes or or your real thoughts, that's one thing. I mean, I think what happens often is that people ignore the work when it's not good. Mm-hmm. Or they say, congrats, you've done it. Or whatever it is. And you can, I feel pretty capable on the receiving end of what the level of compliments. I feel like you can gauge a, a compliment. Yeah. Or I, I, I specialize <laughs> In my own version of self-hatred of gauging how genuine a compliment feels. Yes. Um, I think oftentimes stuff goes unmentioned. You know what I mean? And the truth is, is there's so much stuff now that I just assume no one is watching or listening to my stuff. And that people expect this, <laughs> the same lack of... Of engagement, uh, engagement from me. <laughs> yeah, no, people are busy. That's the thing is you can't assume that everybody's seen everything. But I, you know, when someone has a big public failure, right? If they're a friend, I try to uh, be there for them and let them know that I think that they're funny and that I want to work or whatever it is that they do and that I want to work with them. But you reserve the right to trash them on a podcast, of course, of course. Um, but I also think what I have learned is making anything is incredibly hard. Making a film, good or bad, and again, I think that's one of the great things about watching The Disaster Artist, is it makes you, it just makes you appreciate how fucking hard it is to make something. So even if I don't love a piece of art a friend makes, a, a show or a movie, a TV show or whatever, just the physical act of completing something like that or seeing what they were trying to do, I think there's always positive stuff to be found in that because it's just incredibly hard. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's difficult for people to understand that, I think, when they're just watching it because you see the finished thing and it seems so obvious how you would fix it sometimes. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and, and that you you slowly are a part of things where you're like, wow, there's some of the most talented people I've ever met in the room working on this yeah. over time, and they did not figure it out. Yeah. Right, let's go again. What don't you fucking understand? Kick your fucking ass! Let's go again! What the fuck is it with you? I want you off the fucking set, you prick! No! You're a nice guy! The, the fuck are you doing? No! Don't shut me up! No! No! Ah, da 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 like this! No! No! Don't shut me up! Ah, da 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 like this! Fuck's sake, man, you're amateur! Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. You mentioned uh, Broadway there. Oh, I did, did I? Yeah, you slipped that in. Oh, look at me. Uh, you've been on Broadway <laughs> for the last few months. Well, back in January, you finished your run. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Is that your first time doing a show on Broadway? Yes. And that was Oh Hello. That was Oh Hello. With, with my, John Mulaney. With my friend John Mulaney, the, the deeply unfunny John Mulaney. Well, it's nice of you to, um, you know, take him along, give him a break. Yeah. How did your relationship with him start, and where did the where did those characters start? He and I met in college, yeah. uh, university, and uh, where was that? Georgetown, Georgetown University in Washington D.C., and um, we met when I was a freshman. Uh, I uh, I did this thing called the funniest act on campus. Uh, it was a you know competition of stand up. I'd never done stand up before, and the whole bit I was going to do was uh, pee my pants on stage. And say, you know, I thought I was going to be so nervous, but I'm so relaxed. And then pee my pants. It did not work. I was going to bring a water balloon. And then I forgot the water balloon. And it just, I bombed. Um, In the same competition, the guy who won that competition was Mike Birbiglia. Oh, yeah. Who's a quite well-established stand-up and storyteller and filmmaker now. And he then cast me in a sketch show at the end of my freshman year. He did piss his pants. He did piss his pants. He did it for real, though. For real, constantly over a number of years and i and i want your listeners to know that the yeah. podcasts that mike probiglia is a pee-pee pants boy <laughs> <laughs> and that shouldn't he, be forgotten he's a wee wee man he's a little wee wee man and he's a pee-pee boy this is not true by the way <laughs> this is a, a an ironical riff yeah, this is one of these classic <laughs> riffs where i trash my friend uh but mike cast me in this uh, improv group sketch group um and then when i was a senior uh, I cast John Mulaney as a wee freshman, and we just hit it off immediately, became very close friends. And when I graduated, I moved to New York, and he would come to New York, and he lived on my couch one summer, and we would do, you know, open mics, and we started writing little pieces together. And then we started doing these characters. I would host a show in the East Village. I was hosting with my friend Jesse Klein, another very talented comedian and writer. And then she moved to L.A. and I I asked John if he wanted to host the show with me. And we started hosting as these characters um, who were two Upper West Side men, turtleneck blazer, NPR listening, I guess, the, you know, coffee breath, tote bags, Woody Allen... Alan Alda obsessed. Right, okay, because John sounds a little bit like Alan Alda. Yes. Yeah. So it's it, that was always our way in, was it's like two divorcees from the Upper West Side were obsessed with Alan Alda. And it, you know that it's a, hopefully, I believe the the English, I mean, knowing a Woody Allen film, that, that kind of guy who where, you know, we were obsessed with the idea that like, you know, an architect in his late 40s in like corduroys with like balding, like women could be like, he's irresistible. Yes, you know yes. what I mean. It's that kind going out with a much younger, much yes, more attractive yes. woman. Yeah, like that. We would, yeah go to a dinner party <laughs> with our friends and a and a fourteen year old girl, and nobody would blink an eye. Yeah, we became very obsessed with that kind of man, and so we started hosting a show as them, this stand up show, and our friends would do a set, and then we would interview them and just fuck with them, you know. And it was like, you know, Jiminy Glick had come out and Martin Short's character, yeah, yeah, who's brilliant. I, I don't, he, he's not that well known in the UK that character, but it's so oh, great. It's so deeply fun. It's it was, and I think the UK has a, a, a stronger tradition of it with like Alan Partridge and Sasha with with Ali G, Ali G yeah. and all those characters where the interviewee becomes the straight man to the character doing the interview. Yeah, where you're punching down <laughs> yeah. um, but it's the most fun and, and like so we had 
you know, we, we basically did our version of that. And we would interview our friends, our stand-ups, and they would have to deal with it. Anyway, then we stopped doing the show. I moved to L.A. John became a writer on SNL. And then I got a sketch show, and we started doing those characters on my sketch show, on Kroll's show. And they developed a thing called a prank show called Too Much Tuna, where we would prank unsuspecting guests at lunch with too much tuna fish. <laughs> also a pointless... I still am not exactly clear what is <laughs> where, funny about where it. Where did that come from? Well, we had... You were just trying to think of the lamest prank. N- well, no, it came originally where... <laughs> actually, John and Jesse, my friend uh, who I'd mentioned, we were all at lunch one day, and, and she got like a, a salad niçoise, and it came, and there was just a ton of tuna on it. And she mm. was like, this is too much tuna. And and we were like, that's a funny talk show, where it's like, welcome to Too Much Tuna. I guess today is Adam. Adam, we... And then the plates get serving up. This is, well, this is too much tuna, you know. And it so it started there, and then I told that to my writers' room, and the writers were like, "Oh, that's funny." It was one of those things where you know you have a bit with your friend, and you're like, "All I do is think of bits to produce," and that one was just like, "Well, that's just for us." And then everyone was like, "Oh, that's funny." Then we turned that into a prank show where they prank people with too much tuna fish, a big mountain of tuna. Yeah, and we did it on Kroll Show as a kind of a recurring sketch and. We, uh, you didn't ask for the history of this, but I thought no, I did actually. Okay, I, I specifically asked for the history. Okay, great. So, so then we we were promoting season three of Kroll Show, and we did a in conversation with at the ninety second Street Y in New York. You have YMCA's, mm. it's a, but the Y is a real mecca for these kinds of guys. You know what I mean? Who would right. use the pool and and play racquetball and go to like lectures? You know, they could make the, our characters could make a. A whole weekend at the Y. I don't know if we have a, a, an equivalent in the UK, really. I mean, there must be, but it's... It, it's I don't sort think of it... a public-private... You know, it's a... it's Like a club, It's almost. a club, but it's a theoretically largely public in yeah. its own capacity. Yeah. And it's a very New York thing of, of the past, really, more than anything. So we did a... We appeared live as those characters and got interviewed by a Willie Geist, who's one of the co-hosts of the Today Show. And... We just largely improvised for an hour and a half. We gave him some questions, and he had questions, and we just fucked around. And and it was a big. It was like nine hundred people. We hadn't performed the characters live in seven, eight years, and it was deeply fun. And then everyone was like, "What do you? What's next?" And we both immediately said, "Oh, hello on Broadway," and it was a joke. And then we sort of took a beat, and we were like, "This is not a joke." Because oh, oh hello was the was the name of the sketch and the yes, character. It was called yeah. It was yeah. Really, oh hello, you know, and it was that was the name of the sketch for whatever reason. That's how you know. Yeah. And so we we said oh hello on Broadway, and it was a joke. But then it got very quickly very serious because what we had been bandying about for a long time, and what our influence on those guys more than anything was sort of Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks, the two thousand year old man, mm-hmm. and Nichols and May. Yes. Um, except we have no straight man between us. But it was sort of that something about the banter of those two guys on stage live enjoying each other and that sort of patter, that more classic kind of patter. So we then were like, well, let's go to Broadway. And our everyone in our life who on the work side was like, you don't have a fucking script. And we're like, oh, uh-huh, okay. So then we booked an off-Broadway theater, the Cherry Lane Theater in the, in the West Village. And it was an amazing beautiful storied old theater we booked it for a month three months out and we were like oh sh- all right we got three months to write a play um which we wrote in la and then brought to new york and teched it for two days with our director who had not seen it basically until we got to new york this guy alex timbers who's a truly amazing director He's directed david burns two musicals in new york really Here lies love and uh joan of arc and and did a Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and has done just a bunch of theater, classic theater, but is a really sharp sort of subversive uh, mind. And it, I guess to like, and as I talk about all this, this process, it's I think actually more similar to the process of going to Edinburgh or putting a show together. Right. Okay. Yeah. But it's not as common here. Yes, in America, comedians generally do specials, which will just be mm-hmm. like jokes. Yes, and or yeah, or less... they or they get a sketch show, right? And we used to, I think, do more like our live sketch show that hopefully will get us a deal to develop to do something. But now 
you just don't need it as much. Yeah, and and the template in the UK is much more. You do a show about something, and yes. it's an hour long, and uh, and you do a new one every year. Or right. You do you know which seems like a nightmare. I did it once, mm-hmm. and I just thought, nah, that's enough for me. <laughs> Well, but also your stuff is quite, you, there, it's labor-intensive to, I feel like, having watched you perform, it's quite labor-intensive. Yeah, although the thing I did first in Edinburgh in 2005 was a character. Uh-huh. And um, I crowbarred in some of my videos uh-huh. and bits and pieces into this character who was, uh, you know, he's kind of a uh, East European um, a, a animator and... <laughs> It was quite pretentious and, you know, uh, wrote a lot of poems and got quite angry sometimes. And then, you know, what to show you this thing that he had made. You weirdly look like you could be a Eastern European. Yeah, well, I grew a big, that's when I first grew a beard Uh was for, for, for this thing to age myself up a little bit. And then after that, when I got back from Edinburgh and I shaved it off, it was, it was so alarming. I'd got used to it for a whole year, you know. And it was a big old fucking... Did you like it? ...pirate beard. I quite liked it. I mean, it was a bit out of control. It was a bit mad looking. Um, there's an actor called James Nesbitt in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I found myself next to him uh, in a urinal one time. And he looked over and went, Jesus fucking Christ, that's grotesque. That's a bad James Nesbitt impression. But he, yeah, it was just total contempt. I think he knew who I was, and, uh-huh. and he was shocked by how I looked with, uh-huh. this, with this giant beard. But anyway, by now the way, my... you said urinal. We would call it a urinal. A urinal. A urinal. Yeah. Urinal sounds yeah. like you're buying a record. Well, yes, you you put you put the stress on the first syllable, don't you, for urine? And well, I suppose we do as well. No, I don't know. You don't say urine. I don't say we don't say urine, and we say. I want you to ur. Urinate in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you do that thing with the characters for the Oh Hello characters of doing contractions. Yes, yeah. So instead Cocaine. of saying cocaine, yeah. so instead of saying Ted Cruz and James Brown, it's uh, James Brown. You want to do a little cocaine with Ted Cruz? <laughs> Would be the yeah. It was a very Mulaney said early on. Said cocaine. And it just like, it literally, we were, it was, this was when we were sort of, you know, formulating these guys and he said cocaine and it just like every synapse in me exploded being like, that's the funniest fucking word I've ever heard. Yeah. And it became a major, and then we just built it out kind of from there. And it's a show about, uh, two men who are being kicked out of their rent controlled apartment. Um, and then and it's by G- Gil and George, and they're playing two characters named Gil and George. And then the play breaks down. But we set up the play as like all the things that we quote unquote love about plays, you know, like one sided phone calls where the one character says all the information out loud so that the other person knows, or the dim lines, the, the last line you say just as, and then the, the lights dim, uh-huh. and you sit in your seat and you're like, is that the fucking end of the play? <laughs> um, and then in the play, we end up, you know, using a bunch of those those tropes. Yes. Um, did you did you go to the theater a lot before you did that? I mean, would you see plays? I sort of do. I mean, it's like a weird thing of like, we love plays and I have a ton of contempt for plays. I find plays embarrassing. Just how I, in a way I found sketch shows embarrassing at some point where it's like, we're all going to pretend we're like, we're not in the same room right now. Like, oh, they're in a Chinese restaurant. Okay. Or like, oh, they're in a Victorian home? Okay. It's like, no, some guy just farted in the crowd. Like, we're all here in the room. We heard that guy fart. We're not going to talk about that. But again, once we were in New York and we eventually went back and, and got on Broadway and you all of a sudden can appreciate how hard it is to make a play or go to see musicals, which aren't inherently my favorite. But then you see a musical and you're like, holy shit, I can't believe how hard this is to pull off yes and there are moments because of that thing that you just mentioned the ludicrousness of everybody sat there in the same room but when it works it is sort of magnificent Mm -hmm. that human beings are able to do this for each other yes you know what i mean i found yeah like i saw a curious incident of the dog Mm, in in the the, night yes like you see a, a show like that and i was blown away by the entirety of the production of the performances the set the music, I mean, I just was in awe of it. Um, and so there were things like that that were inspiring. Or I saw a play downtown by this woman, Annie Baker, 
and it was a three hour play and there was three characters and one set and you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm walking into a three hour play. Mm. But it was... I wouldn't have done. But it was... And it's and the play is in real time. Yes. So scenes take a long time to play out. Like you're watching people clean a movie theater and it's is what, what they're... It's three people who work in a, in a movie theater that... And you watch scenes in real time and... But for whatever reason, it is so beautiful. It was so beautifully written and directed and acted that it was riveting to watch but while that's happening a woman in the crowd opened a plastic container of blueberries and started eating them was this a real woman or this is a real woman not so a... i'm so i'm watching the play but then i start watching this woman eat blueberries so she's not a plant no she is not a plant yeah. she's just there and then i watched an older man like our oh hello age guy watching the woman eat the blueberries and getting so furious ah. With this yeah. woman who's crinkling her plastic as she eats her blueberries and, you know, nudging his wife who's now being drawn into this. And so much of what the show is about is really also the experience of just going to the theater. So much of your show. Yes. Yes, yes. So there's like, you know, the experience of what it's like to go to a theater and bring your little plastic candies and yeah. and what it's like to sit and listen to people, you know, so... People taking phone calls. And yeah, exactly. Which we encourage people to do. Did you really? Take calls, text people. <laughs> um, Get selfies. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, it was... We did it off Broadway, and then we toured it around the country, and then brought it back to Broadway, and we did uh, like 138 shows, 140 shows. God, like that's that. a lot. It was the most fun. And how big was the theater that you were doing it in in the end? Then? It was 900, 950, Whoa, something like that. That's a load. We had just sold a lot of tickets. Um, yeah. Shows on in the West End and on Broadway. Mm-hmm often close after only a few weeks because it's so difficult to fill those theaters. Yeah, we got very lucky. The confluence of various things that led us to it, just the timing of it, it was the fall. We also interviewed someone live in the middle of the show. We would, quote-unquote, prank someone with too much tuna in the middle of our show, <laughs> Yeah, um, which was a great way to get friends and crazy special guests and heroes to come do the show. What kind of people did you manage to get in there? Oh, man. I mean, friends like, you know, someone like a guy who I, Jason Manzukis, a good friend who I've worked with for a long time, or mm-hmm. Paul Rudd or or um, Schumer, Amy Schumer or uh, Chris Pratt, then to like heroes like Seinfeld, uh, Colbert, David Letterman did our final show, Steve Martin, Michael J. Fox. Oh, my God. And everyone, Yitzhak Perlman, like the, you know, like we had every kind of person. Barney Frank, who's a, the first openly gay congressman. Alana Glazer from Broad City. So, and both contemporaries, yeah. heroes, everyone. How extraordinary. And, and what would you say to them? I mean, how would it work for them? Would they have to do any prep? No, it was, they would come backstage before the show. We'd chat with them for five, ten minutes, and we'd basically say... Thanks for coming. Uh, so basically, we'll just most of almost everybody came out of the crowd. They would watch the show, and then and there was something I think joyful for the crowd to be like, "Oh wow, this person's been sitting here watching the show with us, and then now they're on stage." And uh, we would bring call them from the crowd halfway through the show, and uh, we would sit and interview them, and we would say like, well, "And we'll just chat for 10, 15 minutes, and then uh, a tuna sandwich will appear." Um, and what it, ha- it would it would be dropped from the rafters, and we would say, "What is just descended from this prop that we stole from an old Chihuahua production of Angels in America?" And then it would be a huge mountain of tuna with a <laughs> piece of bread teetering on top, and we would talk about the tuna sandwich. And then the only thing they had to do was say, "That's too much tuna." Uh-huh. And when they'd say that, we would calypso music would come on and we would celebrate (laughs) and uh, then we would send them off the stage and so it was very loose and silly and people played it differently some people were angry i mean faux angry and wouldn't take shit from us and others laughed and you know it's an interesting thing when again you go back to that when the the interviewee is the straight man of sorts well how far will you know do they try to be funny or not for the most part people would sort of allow us to sort of run wild but sometimes they would equally run wild with us and it was like everything you'd for me at everything i'd ever wanted show business to be mm. it was live every night we got to change jokes that weren't working and polish things and then you'd have interesting people coming to see the show or being a part of the show and then you'd go and have a drink i drank like a thousand martinis yeah you know? it must be hard to sort of 
keep yourself relatively together when you've got that sort of routine and and the excitement and the pressure of doing the show mm-hmm. then coming off stage you, you you need to sort of unwind a little bit don't you and yeah i mean that's why i i would smoke heroin i was never shooting it because i just needed to unwind absolutely but i wasn't an addict i'm not an addict you should rub it into your gums <laughs> oh i do every day or into your rectum yeah i put it straight up into my rectum yeah, if yeah. you spray it Oh, into your rectum. a mist. Yeah, a mist. It'll get right into the bloodstream. Nice heroin mist. Yeah, and my butt is not as motivated as it used to be, but it's... Hey, whose is? <laughs> That's right. You wait. You're, you're a young man. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it was true joy to do. So you destroyed Broadway. We destroyed it. It was uh, the it was yeah, it was it was the most fun thing I've ever done and I'm willing to say possibly the most fun, joyful, gratifying thing I will ever do professionally. Does that make you keen to develop another project for the theater? I think John and I would like to maybe work on another one or to, we're going to continue to work with these guys. Our goal is to do these guys until we are the age of that they are. Yes, you could be like Steve Coogan. I mean, Steve Coogan is now approaching, I think he's sort of more or less in the zone for optimum of, Alan Partridge. Right, just with with minimal... Minimal makeup. Yeah. Although he's pretty fit and uh, he's sort of fitter and better looking than Partridge would be, I suppose. Yes. I talked to Steve for this podcast and um, he was saying that he doesn't feel pressure to, to churn out new stuff. Yeah. They only do things when... When they sure. feel like well, when you're funny. when you become iconic, that takes a little of the pressure. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But also, there there are so many different mo- and I don't know if it's the case in the UK, but because of like streaming services, there's become more models for through which to make content when you want. Yes, that's right. You don't have to make like a show. You're like, I'm inspired to make this special for this year or something like mm. that. And I think that that is inspiring. Yeah, and, and people, it, you know, your your fans will find it. And- yeah. And not daunting, you know? So, like, I just watched The Lonely Island and Comedy Bang Bang, uh, you know, the Michael Bolton Valentine's Day special on Netflix. So oh, if you have right. A, you should watch. It's very funny, and it's got a bunch of great cameos, and it's they just decided to make a bizarre piece of content. It's an hour, and it's a, a really a joyful thing to watch. Did you do the whole improv thing when you were younger? I did a, yeah, I studied in college. We had an improv group and we studied with the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York. And then when I came to New York, I studied there and, and started working. And, and if you look for sure on the comedy landscape right now on television and film, you, you could point to, I would say, if, you know, half to three quarters of the people on those shows or movies are, have some history in, at UCB. That seems to be the way for a lot of comedians to go, as, you, as you've just said. Mm. Um, in the States, it's beginning to come through a little bit in the UK, the whole improv thing. But it's not nearly so common. What's the average, like, what kind of things do you do in the classes then? Um, you know, there's exercises that are probably not different from what you do in a class, uh, you know, any sort of acting, acting class, class right. and improvisation. But then... But what happens is, I mean, there's a couple of things. One, there's the basic I, premise of like what they would say is teaching the game of the scene. You're like, what is the funny thing about this scene? And you get trained to then figure out how to write three more versions of it, heightening just like any joke we would do. You'd try to heighten heighten the joke and find different ways of playing that joke. So there are skills like that. But more than anything, it's like community. I mean, they taught incredibly useful pieces of, of how to improvise and then how to write sketch and things like that but also you're just going to be able to go to a place and meet other funny people who are weird and interesting like you or interested like you and and it just the difference between your classic improviser sketch comedian and a stand-up is that just the concept of collaboration people who are seeking other people to collaborate with versus being an island but what's been interesting i think as stuff like podcasts and all that we've seen a meshing of those worlds where quote-unquote improvisers are writing because everyone eventually has to write and classic stand-ups or or individual acts are realizing they can collaborate and do different things with different people Mm. so i think those lines have blurred a lot more than they have in the past can i go to an improv class now that i'm nearly 50 of course does it happen though? Do oh you, yeah. Do you get oldies turning up? 
Well, yeah, I think you, I mean, you're not an oldie. Thanks. You're a goodie. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that's kind of the beauty. I mean, what was fascinating about taking the classes is, and I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I took classes now almost probably about 15 years ago when I graduated college. And, you know, you'd have, you'd have like crazy people. You'd have performance artists who were just there and like weird New York freaks. You had medium funny people. And then you have the people who have become the biggest comedy acts in the country all in the same room doing the same show. And you sort of realize you find the people who you're like, oh. But I think the beauty of it and those classes too is that you have people of all ages. And I mean, there are movie stars taking UCB classes. Uh-huh. Now. Right, who have become stars and then gone and started doing the classes. Yeah, they're they're like, I want to learn how to improvise. Like, oh. how does that guy do that thing? Yeah, yeah. And they've then been like, you know, if they've done a movie with someone who's improvised, and then they're like, I want to learn that. And all of a sudden you show up in your class and it's like, oh, there's a movie star in my class. Yeah. Who wants to understand the act of it. Um, and yeah. it's, it's muscle. It's muscle like everything else, you know. Mm. It's like... Because I, I was an improviser and then did stand up and character work and then was drawn more to that side of it. I was performing at UCB, but I wasn't on an improv team. I was just doing characters and stand up and all that stuff and, and would do bits on people's shows. But it took me a while to get back to actually doing improv and, and that muscle needs to be exercised. Just it's like, like masturbation. Yeah. And I, that's what I, I combined the two on stage. <laughs> I would improvise masturbation scenarios quite right there's not too much of that sort of stuff around these days is there like extremely gross acts as part no, of like, an art performance there was that pe puppetry of the penis yeah but they weren't like that wasn't a sexy thing really, no was it did I you ever see puppetry of the penis i did not did it, you uh i did a tv show with a guy who was in it for a while uh-huh and <laughs> he showed us some of his moves uh in between takes mm-hmm and um, it was pretty impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was really stretching. The his... boundaries of... How was his, how was his hog? Uh, it was very unthreatening. Uh-huh. That was one of the nice things about it. Sure. It didn't look remarkable. That's, what, it... that's what most people have said about me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and I wonder if they've said this about you, mm -hmm. incredibly pliable. I remember early, I was, I was saying in New York early on, you know, there was a mix of you do open mics and there was a real crossover between experimental performance art and stand-ups. Everybody just looking for a, a stage to perform on. So there early on, I definitely remember doing shows where I there was guys doing stuff with their penis. It wasn't puppetry of the penis. It was just playing with their dicks on stage. <laughs> or, you know, a guy, I remember the first, he would... The guy who hosted this show was not a comedian exactly, and he would do contests throughout the show and give out what he said was, quote, disturbingly jackable porn. Uh-huh. And then I was coming up and doing just classic stand-up, and we were all in the same room together. Yes. And it was a fun. Yes. I mean, you know, it's always, it's always good for a little uh, frisson of shock, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there was Gigi Allen. Do you remember Gigi of course. Allen? Flinging his feces yes. into the audience. Yes. I mean, yeah. he was a punk... Uh, yeah but it was i've never been up for that personally if if i hear that someone's going to be lobbing their turds <laughs> i generally stay away no yeah i i i watched a video of him but i did not get to see him live no no i have a i have a limited tolerance for performers who have deep contempt for the crowd the first lesson i learned it took me a while to learn it and the only piece of advice i give to people who want to do comedy or whatever is just get on stage and make the audience feel like you're in charge. And sometimes that means having a contempt for them. Um, but so, it sometimes it just means like everything's going to be fine. I find sometimes when some people have a seemingly a contempt for the audience and, and lash out, the audience is like, what? Yeah. I don't like it when comedians in a confident way put the audience down for not laughing enough. Yes. Um, because actually it's, it's doing the opposite of what they want. It's revealing to the audience yeah. that they're insecure about the amount of laughs they're getting. Correct. Now, one of the things, Nick, I, I met you first um, a couple of years ago in, in Dublin. Yes. At the Comedy Festival. It was a great pleasure. And I got to uh, take a selfie and, and text it to our mutual friend, Garth Jennings. Yes. Um, because you were in Sing 
Yes. You were Gunther. I was Gunther, the uh, dancing Gunther. European pig. Euro techno pig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Garth brought me in. A, I had done a European character on my show, and I think he responded to my that version. And then we changed it quite because the, the European character on my show turned out to be a cannibal, um, a murderous cannibal. What uh, was the name of that character? Euro guy. He never got a. He was just a European was his name. He was sort of like you know, who I let's uh, for breakfast would do like two or three cigarette and then a bowl of heavy cream and then uh, for lunch it's two three bottle red wine and then a two pack Marlboro cigarette and uh, <laughs> um, uh, and then for dinner we'll do something healthy like four or five sausages. Um, <laughs> so what became Gunter. It was quite different, but event on on the show, I was quite inspired by uh, I can't remember his name, the German guy who um, got online and to become a cannibal. That's right, Ermin Ermin Muse, slaughter and consume you. He wanted to. He got online and said, "I want to." Is there anybody interested in being slaughtered and consumed? And, and he, someone got in touch. Someone got in touch, and he did it. Yeah, Gunter, however, the dancing pig in the children's film I played for yeah. Garth is not like quite that. is not that. But um, it was very fun. It seemed to be that the the Gunter poster was the most um, ubiquitous around the world. It was, I was, it was very weird. I went skiing, and there was a, a giant Gunter staring down at me at the ski lift. Yeah, it was very very bizarre because the movie is like Matthew McConaughey and Scarlett Johansson and Reese Witherspoon yeah. and big huge movie stars and um and it was the, there were Gunter posters I, I, less a testament to me and more to I think just a a positive dancing pig yeah people like pigs people love pigs I love to eat them yeah <laughs> <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Good panting there, Rosie. It's a lovely day, isn't it? Are you feeling hot because you've got your coat on? I got my coat on, I got my black woolly coat on. Can you not take it off? No. It's on there all the time, permanent fashion item, innit? Fair enough. Nick Kroll there. Thank you so much to him for giving up his time. Very much enjoyed meeting Nick. And uh, before I say goodbye today, a couple of bits of business. Due to popular demand, we have released a second unsigned edition of the Ramble Chat posters that I told you about a couple of weeks back and which sold out very fast. It's a four-color screen print. I believe it's around A3 size or something like that. You'll be able to see on my blog if you go to adam-buxton.co.uk and click on the merch button. You'll find a few bits and pieces, including some more of these posters which were created by artist Luke Drozd. And as I said, they sold out very fast when they were first available. Secondly, I've got a few shows coming up, the Bug Bowie specials. Uh, so that's a celebration of Bowie's music videos and other assorted visual odds and sods, along with uh, commentary from the YouTube community on a couple of occasions and 
bits of animation that I've had created and, uh, you know, there's serious bits and stupid bits. You don't have to be a hardcore Bowie fan to enjoy it, I don't think. I'm doing it at the Brighton Festival at the Brighton Dome on Tuesday the 23rd of May, but I think that's sold out. I'm doing it in Oxford, though, on Wednesday the 24th and in Birmingham on Thursday the 25th, and I believe there are still tickets left for those shows as I speak. I'll put details once again on my blog, adam-buxton.co.uk, in the badly maintained events section. (laughs) So maybe I'll see you at one of those shows. Hope so. Hey, Rosie. You want to come and lie down with me? What are you doing? Why are you lying down? It's the middle of a day. It's a work day. I know, but it's... We're lucky. We can, we can do this. We should take advantage of this good weather while we can. It's weird. You're weird. You should go home, send some emails, do some important grown-up things. I will in a bit. All right, listeners, take care. I'm not going to yell because it'll spoil the moment Rosie will run off. I love you. Bye. Oh, not... I do love you, Rosie, but don't kiss me. (laughs) All right. See ya.